I'm Vicky Mochama, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. So far in this series, we've talked about the stuff that's happening on land. But a lot of what happens in this country has to do with the water around us. On this planet, water is a big deal. It covers nearly three quarters of the Earth's surface and comprises nearly 95% of all livable space. The health of our oceans and seas affects everything, from human well-being to food security to global climate and economy. As a natural resource, the seas and oceans provide work for three billion people around the world. That's just under half of this Earth. The depths of the seas and oceans are home to hundreds of thousands of species, with millions more that haven't yet been discovered. Considering that we've only explored 5% of what lies beneath the waves, that leaves 95% as a giant floating question mark. Despite how little we know about our oceans, there are still seemingly endless threats to oceanic health. One of those threats is marine debris. It's anything man-made that ends up on our shorelines. Acidification, resource depletion, and coastal habitat destruction are just some of the other things that leave marine habitats vulnerable. Within the SDGs, Canada has committed to protecting 10% of its marine and coastal areas by 2020. But by 2017, Canada had only hit 7.75%. And here's the thing. Canada has the world's longest coastline. We are bordered by oceans to the north, to the east, and to the west. And yet, we're aiming to protect just 10% of that. So what happens to the other 90%? And what will that mean for the future of marine life, coastal communities, and the health of the people who depend on our oceans to survive? In this episode, I'm focusing on SDG 14, Life Below Water. This is a deep dive into the welfare of our seas and oceans. First, I'll speak to Alia Darcy, an investigative journalist who has done plenty of work around global sustainability and pollution. Then I'll talk to Josh Lauren, the executive director of Oceana, an organization devoted to protecting the water all around us. Because to make big changes, there can be no little plans. Alia Darcy is a Vancouver-based journalist whose work focuses on sustainability, global development, and Canada's policies on plastic pollution. She's been reporting on the SDGs for The Discourse, an outlet that focuses on local communities. Alia, in your work, you've had the opportunity to zoom in and take a look at water issues. So how much marine debris are we seeing in the waters around Canada and how much on our actual shores? Uh, So that's a great question. And Nobody has the answer to that. There is a ton of plastic in the ocean. Uh, For example, a group of scientists estimated in 2014 that there's 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic floating in the ocean. So that's just the plastic debris that's floating. It doesn't include stuff that's sunk to the ocean floor or isn't close to the surface. Canada has the longest coastline in the world. It's 243,000 kilometers long. We're bordered by three oceans. So that exposes us potentially to a lot of this marine debris. But because we don't monitor it, we don't know how much of it is coming here and affecting our environment. However, we do have some data that gives us some hints about the scale of the problem. So, for example, uh, there's a group called the Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup. They organize cleanups across the country um, 
Their data from 2017 says that they had volunteers who cleaned 3,000 kilometers of shoreline. So that's about 1% of Canada's shoreline. And they found 88,721 kilograms of trash, uh, amounting to about 10,000 trash bags. So that's just on 1% of our shoreline. And it's unclear, you know, what's happening around the rest, like the other 99%. A lot of those areas are remote areas, and they're likely to have more plastic or other types of pollution based on what scientists and cleanup groups are saying, because uh, beaches that are easily accessible, where people can drive, they get more people walking by and cleaning up stuff. That's kind of jarring, you know, 10,000 trash bags worth of plastic on 1% of what we can actually account for. But that's on a volunteer basis. Is there something that the government of Canada is supposed to be doing in, in relation to marine debris? Well, Canada has made some commitments internationally about this issue. And the environment minister has also committed that Canada is going to be building a national strategy to take action on this issue. But so far, those commitments are generally pretty vague. Canada doesn't have a system in place, nor do many countries, to measure how much marine debris there is. So we can't really know how much we're reducing it or what significantly reducing it looks like. So there's uh, quite a few environmental groups and scientists across the country who are calling for the government to take some solid action on this issue, to put things like a monitoring program in place, and to, you know, mount significant cleanup efforts to get to these remote areas where volunteers are struggling to reach or not reaching at all. So what are, what are the risks if, you know, the government doesn't do more to step up in terms of data collection and then ultimately clean up? You know, what do we risk if we don't deal with the plastic and pollution problem in the water? It's really unclear what kind of impact plastic pollution can have in on the environment in the long run. So, for example, one of the scientists I spoke to, Peter Ross, who's the director of the Ocean Pollution Research Program at the Vancouver Aquarium, the way he kind of summarized it to me is that we're basically conducting experimental research with Mother Nature because all of this plastic is going into the environment. Um, so just to give you a sense of some of the more surprising or alarming statistics I've come across, there's a scientific paper uh, from about 15 years ago that found that a piece of plastic can absorb a million times more chemicals than the surrounding water. A good way to illustrate this is if you think of like a Tupperware container after you've put pasta and tomato sauce in it, oftentimes the tomato sauce can be really hard to wash out and you get that kind of oily reddish tint. And that's because plastic attracts a lot of different types of substances. It's been found, you know, in the stomachs of fish and sea turtles and birds. So it's affecting all kinds of elements of the food chain, including stuff that humans eat. If Canada doesn't act and doesn't take substantial leaps forward. What does 2030 look like for our waters? I can't really definitively say what 2030 looks like, but I would say there's a lot to be concerned about. You know, we don't know how much impact this plastic exposure has on human health, but there is evidence that it affects the health of sea life. It affects how they reproduce. It affects their behavior, so it can have that effect on humans as well. And apart from plastic, there are a lot of other challenges that our waterways are facing. Uh, So for example, across Canada, there are a lot of municipal uh, wastewater management systems, so sewage systems, 
that uh, do not have capacity to manage all of the wastewater that is coming to them. So the city of Toronto, for example, uh, regularly releases untreated sewage into uh, Lake Ontario when its system is over capacity or when there's a lot of rainfall and it can't handle the sewage coming through. There's a lot of chemicals in our water that we don't even uh, have any kind of treatment in place for, like um, antidepressants and birth control that are commonly taken across the population, um, and those end up in the ocean. There's microplastics, and we don't have a system in place for filtering those out, but you know, they go from our laundry into the ocean. It's kind of a collective action problem, because even if Canada solves this problem within our borders, plastic is still going to wash up on our shores, because the oceans are a shared environment and plastic and other trash that end up in the ocean from other countries can eventually float to Canada. The oceans are teeming with life in a way we don't always appreciate. In, in, a, in a random teaspoon full of water, then you will find about a million bacteria and 10 million viruses. And that, that's a number that staggers my imagination. I can't get my head around it, but that's, the, the oceans are a living resource. That's Josh Lockridden. Josh is the executive director for Oceana Canada, which is a group that advocates for the health of our oceans. And he has spent two decades focused on conservation and climate change, helping to establish marine protected areas across the country's coasts and leading the very first Earth Hour in Canada. In a 2016 piece for iPolitics, Josh wrote about the need for the Canadian government to protect the country's oceans and fisheries. He wrote, and I quote, transparency is needed in the management of our fisheries and oceans, end quote. To serve that transparency, he called for a publicly available list of fisheries and their stocks. Now, it has been two years since he wrote that piece, so I asked Joshua how he thinks they are doing now. There, certainly in the last few years in Canada, we've seen a, a reinvestment in science capacity for our oceans. That is was sorely needed and is really important. There's more information available and more transparency around fisheries management decisions and, and how our stocks and populations are doing. That's really good. The government responded very quickly last year to the crisis in the North Atlantic right whales. And there were, I think it was 17 of the, those highly endangered whales killed through ship strikes and, and gear entanglements. They really did you know, have a strong crisis response to that. And lastly, on the, you know, the good news side of the ledger, the government is, is well on its way, it looks like, to meeting its goal to protect 10% of Canada's oceans by 2020, uh, up from less than 1% uh, just a few years ago. So it's always good to recognize where we're making progress. On the other side of it, the effort to save right whales, for example, is a 50-year effort. And if we, if we only deal with it when it's in that crisis mode, then we, we almost assure that they will go to extinction and we can't let that happen. On the habitat protection side, we've got to make sure that the areas that have been identified have real long-term protection in place. And that's still, still work to be done there. 
and we have on two, three other areas, we have not made the progress we need to on rebuilding fish stocks. We're very hopeful, but we haven't yet turned the corner on a lot of the depleted stocks to putting in place strong rebuilding plans and getting them on track. Which, of course, if we can rebuild them, will be of enormous benefit to communities and people who rely on them. And then uh, on two other major threats to oceans globally, one is plastics and pollution, and the other is climate change. On there, we're, we really haven't yet had the response uh, that we know we're going to need if we're going to stop the increase, let alone start decreasing the threats and impacts of both climate change and plastics on our oceans. We know that we're seeing more impacts of pollution like microplastics and marine debris. I asked Josh what some of the other threats are to the oceans that we should be looking out for. I mean, to start on the acidification one, which is which is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night sometimes, the, the, the oceans absorb an enormous amount of the carbon dioxide that we produce, but there's a limit to that. They become saturated. And there are two major consequences of reaching that point. One is, of course, the oceans stop absorbing the carbon dioxide and the earth starts to heat up at a faster and faster rate and into positive feedback loops. That's a really scary scenario. The second, of course, is once the acidity goes up in the oceans, that it starts to eat away at the ability of marine organisms to form you know, uh, calcareous shells, the ability for coral reefs to exist. It really starts to eat at the base of the food chain, which is so important to 3 billion people worldwide, let alone oceans biodiversity. Those are both extremely scary prospects. We will only succeed in avoiding those scenarios, and I believe we can, by getting on top of land-based emissions of carbon dioxide and methane and other climate-causing gases. And we, and we really haven't so the, uh, yet, uh, clearly, in Canada or elsewhere. That is not a good news story. We are still um, way off track on reducing our emissions the way that we need to to save the oceans. And that's not a coastal phenomenon, and that's not something we can address on the uh, on what on the activities we do in the ocean. Despite being surrounded by water, a lot of Canada's industry happens inland. This means that a lot of people live away from our ocean borders. It's easy to feel distant from the problems that people in coastal communities are seeing. I asked Josh how that gap can be bridged. We do have the ability to connect and care with things that are not right on their doorstep. And I think I think plastics is one of the ways that people are connecting with the ocean. Unlike climate change, plastic pollution is visible. You can see it. You know, you, you can recognize an unhealthy ocean. You know, an ocean that's acidified looks from the surface pretty similar to an ocean that isn't. An ocean that's full of plastic does not. And nobody thinks that's a good idea. So I think the images that we're seeing and the knowledge that's coming out about the impact of plastics in the ocean is connecting people, is resonating with people, whether you live in Alberta or in BC or uh, anywhere. Uh, and that's one of the ways, that one of the kind of tools and tactics I think we can use to connect people to the oceans, build a constituency of people who are helping solve the problem. And the other way, too, is through our dinner plate. That's how most of us experience the ocean, no matter, no matter where we live, on a day-to-day -day basis is what we eat. Whether it's understanding that we really need the protein from the ocean to feed a growing and hungry planet that's going to reach 8 or 9 billion by 2050, or, or whether it's the plastics and toxins that are in your fish that, you're, that you might be eating, how that may change if we don't get on top of this, um, whether it's the fact that through poor governance of our fisheries, there's a lot of seafood fraud and that what, what you're buying is not what you're getting. You might be looking to buy a healthy and sustainable 
sustainably sourced fish, but then you're paying for something that actually is the opposite, comes from illegal fishing in, in another part of the world, employing slave labor. So through people's connection with plastics in the ocean and, and why that's not a good thing, and through food that we eat, I think those are ways that we can get people to engage and care about oceans and take action and support action on it, no matter where we live. Okay, time for a quick history lesson. The collapse of the cod fisheries in the Atlantic Ocean 25 years ago was a pivotal moment in how the Canadian government managed oceans. Northern cod was once so abundant that early explorers and indigenous peoples practically waded through the fish to get onto shore. But by 1992, cod had been overfished to the point of near extinction. The federal government put in place a moratorium on fishing cod. It led to the largest layoffs in Canadian history in which 45,000 plus people lost their jobs. I asked Josh what, if anything, we've learned from that time when it comes to ensuring the health of our oceans. We like to speak of it in historical terms where, you know, we sure learned from that cod collapse, um, you know, 25 years ago now. But it's, it, it, is, it is still a story, and, and that's it, not completed yet. 25 years after the collapse of COD, we still don't have a rebuilding plan for them. We still haven't identified what healthy looks like. And more than that, we're still fishing COD at too high levels. Uh, the stock was, uh, looked like it was growing from a very, very low level recently. In the past year or so, uh, the science is, is indicating that it's declined by 30%, but we were unwilling to cut the quota for cod uh, to levels that science was saying was needed. So we'll always increase the quota if it looks like the stock is increasing, but we're really slow to act on decreasing the quota. It starts to decrease. That's what's happening today. That's the same thing that happened 25 years ago. So it's, you know, it's an open question to me whether we've actually learned from the story of cod yet. For your next question about what to worry about next, what we're left with uh, let's look at the Atlantic coast, for example, as a kind of a simplified system. Instead of having cod and other what we call ground fish, you know, large fish and invertebrates like shrimp and, and uh, crab, uh, what we're left with is a simpler system where there's a whole lot of lobster, much more shrimp, you know, much more crab. And a huge amount of our coastal communities and fisheries are reliant on lobster, for example. When uh, the ground fish collapsed, which included cod, Fishermen moved painfully, but there was a shift in effort towards uh, shrimp and crab and lobster. If lobster were to collapse, we have nothing to turn to. That's it. We're down at the lower end of the food chain. If something were to happen with lobster, like a pathogen going through the lobster population because of warming waters, the, the impact on coastal communities, on people, on the regional economy of Atlantic Canada would dwarf the impacts as large as they were on the ground fish collapse that happened in the you know, late 80s, early 90s. So we, one of the reasons we need to rebuild stocks and rebuild ground fish and cod and fish like that is so that we have some resilience in the system. That's I mean, one of the sustainable development goals talks about resilience. Uh, it's a really adaptable word. It can be used to describe a lot of things. But one use of it, one um, genuine use of it is, you know, how much can a system absorb impact? And if you've got healthy stocks, you know, from large fish to small fish to invertebrates like lobster and crab, you can absorb impacts. The ecosystem can, communities can, people can. And right now we've got a simplified system that leaves us very vulnerable to impacts. As a task on your to-do list, protecting the ocean seems like a big responsibility. 
Now, Josh already mentioned thinking about your dinner plate as a way to connect your daily life to the health of our oceans. I wanted to know what else the average person should try to do. I'm a big believer in, in kind of what we call a do demand model, which is do the things in your own life, like uh, participating in a cleanup, you know, a beach cleanup in your area to keep the watershed you're in looking, keeping it healthy, uh, make good decisions on seafood, um, you know, lower your carbon footprint where you can, uh, reduce plastic use where you can. Those are things that we can all do in our lives. I too strive to do that. Don't hit my, hit my marks. Um, but at the same time, we have to make sure that if we're making those changes, that we're demanding those changes from sources of power that can affect change at scale. And by that, I mean especially governments. The Canadian government putting, if, if uh, the Fisheries Act that's being considered right now gets through and is implemented, which requires rebuilding of fish stocks, that's going to have far more effect on the future health of our fish populations than anything we can all do as individuals. The power of government through policy is very strong. Same thing on, uh, on plastics. If we're recycling, if we're not using straws, if we're not using plastic bags where we don't need them, we damn well should be demanding that the large corporations not just enabling us to recycle, but actually committing to and reducing, producing and using single-use plastics. One of the terms I like to use is, you know, we should make good choices based on what's available, but governments and large corporations can change the choices that are available to us. That, that change can get to scale very quickly, which is what we need. So that's a, sort of a one way to attack it. Make the changes in your life, but really insist upon seeing the kind of commitments from government and industry that, to make sure that they're doing their part. For those of us who live inland, thinking about the country's coastlines might not always be at the front of our minds, but it should be. For those of us who live close to the oceans, it's an everyday reality that is quickly becoming a crisis. With so much of the country sharing borders with three big bodies of water, not to mention thousands of lakes, it's more important than ever to take their protection seriously. I'm Vicky Mochama. No Little Plans comes to you courtesy of Community Foundations of Canada. It is produced by Vocal Fry Studios on behalf of Strategic Content Labs, Canada's content marketing consultancy. Our theme music is by Elcon. If you wanted to read the iPolitics piece that Josh wrote or check out Alia's investigative work, you can find them in our show notes, which are available at alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts by communities across Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share as it helps other people find the show. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world.